Let us open the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In Holland, I'm currently doing a series on this chapter. So the sermon tonight is a sermon from that particular series. We're going to read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease." Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Thus far we read. I call your attention to verse 12, which will be the text. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, undoubtedly 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter that is familiar to us and rightly so. It is the Bible's exquisite chapter on that chief of the fruits of the Spirit, namely charity or Christian love. In this chapter, there are three sections. Verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the supremacy of Christian love over every other spiritual gift that God gives His people. And that was an important application that needed to be made to the Corinthian congregation, 
which was a true church of Jesus Christ, but like all true churches, had its problems. And one of the problems in Corinth was that they so exalted certain gifts, such as knowledge, such as the temporary gift during the apostolic age, the speaking of tongues, as well as other gifts. They so prized those gifts that they neglected the gift of love. And Paul points out that many of the problems in their congregation was due to their neglect of this gift, which chapter 12, verse 31 says, is the more excellent way. Love is the supreme spiritual gift that God gives his people. So much so that every other spiritual gift is without profit and indeed useless apart from love. You notice that in the striking things that the inspired apostle says in verses 1 through 3 where he says, many things that we would esteem to be of the highest value are worthless apart from love. I might have all knowledge, all prophecy. I may give my body to be burned. I may give all that I have to the poor. But without love, it profits me nothing, and I am nothing. Love is a spiritual gift wrought in the heart of the child of God that beautifully reflects who God is. Because as the scriptures teach, God is love. And that leads then to the second section of this chapter, verses 4 through 7, which give the Bible's portrait of love. As it were, verses 4 through 7 paint a beautiful portrait of what true love is. And it is strikingly different from the kind of thing that the world calls love. The world says love is this, letting someone do whatever they want and never saying no, never expressing any sort of judgment about their choices or behavior. That is not what we have here in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 paints us a picture of love that is first of all concerned with God and His glory, and yet love that is nevertheless kind, long-suffering, gentle, humble, patient, and all of the rest. True love is identified not by how it feels, but true love is identified by its attitudes and actions. And that's something to notice. Even if you browse verses 4 through 7, you will see that as the apostle describes love, he describes and defines love by showing it in action. This is how love thinks and how love behaves. But then we come to the last part of the chapter in which our text is found, verses 8 through 13. Verses 8 through 13 focus on the everlasting character of Christian love. The chapter ends on a high note lifting us up, as it were, to heaven itself, where this gift of love will be made perfect. And that's what heaven will be like. Perfect love. Between us and God, and between us and our fellow saints, our co-heirs of the grace of life. And our text is found in that section. Our text continues that thought, begun at verse 8, pointing out the everlasting character of love. Love, a spirit-wrought gift which continues into eternal life. And here in verse 12, we have a marvelous contrast. You'll notice the repetition of those two words, now and then. The inspired apostle is contrasting our life in this present world with our life to come in the world to come. 
And in particular, he focuses in verse 12 upon the knowledge of God. And we understand that in the Scripture, when we speak of the knowledge of God, it's more than just an intellectual thing, but the knowledge of God is a knowledge of love. It's in the heart. Now, we see through a glass darkly. We know God in part, but then, face to face, then we shall know Him, even as we are known of Him. Those deep and those beautiful words we consider tonight. Our theme is knowing God now and then. Our first point will be now. We're going to look at how we know God right now. Then we're going to look at then, what the text says about them, then. And then third and finally, until. We're going to come back and see what this text has to say about how we live now, until, then. The text presents us with a figure, a picture, to help us understand Deep spiritual truth. Now, the text says, now we see through a glass darkly. And we could more literally render the Greek of the text this way. Now we see through a looking glass in a dark saying. What do these words mean? Well, let's understand that when the text speaks of seeing through a glass, the word through does not mean looking through it to see something on the other side, the way that you would look through a window and see something outside. But rather, the word through here means by means of, seeing something by means or by use of a glass. And so the glass of the text here is not a window, but the Greek word in the text, glass, refers to a mirror, a mirror. Many mirrors in the ancient world of Paul's day were not made of the substance glass as we know it today, but many of them were made from polished metal. And so you can picture in your mind a polished piece of metal that is placed upon a table or hung on a wall that serves as a mirror. That's what's being talked about. We see in a mirror. Now, what do you see in a mirror? You see a reflection, a reflection of someone either your own reflection or the reflection of another person in the room who may be standing behind you. Seeing in the mirror the reflection of another's face. That's the idea of the text, which then leads to the question, whose reflection? Whose reflection do we see in this glass darkly? And clearly from the text, it is... God's reflection, specifically the face of God in Jesus Christ. That is who we see reflected in this mirror. And that's clear from the fact that the text parallels knowing God and seeing 
in a glass darkly. Notice that, the first line of the text, for now we see through a glass darkly. And then in the third line of the text, now I know in part that knowing and seeing is parallel. That's the same thing. Who do we know? The last part of the verse. Knowing even as also I am known. And who is the one who knows us with an intimate knowledge? It is God our creator and our redeemer. The text is talking about the knowledge of God. And it is saying this. The knowledge of God is like seeing his reflection in a mirror. That's the kind of knowledge we have of God now. Which leads to the next question. What is this mirror? The mirror in which we see the reflection of the face of God in Jesus Christ is not a piece of polished brass, nor is it a piece of glass. Nor is it even the creation round about us. We know that the creation round about us declares the glory of God. Something of the handiwork of the master creator is seen in the works of his hands. General revelation. We catch a glimpse of the power and the deity of God when we look around at the creation. But that's not what the text has in view because you don't see the face of Jesus reflected in the natural world. Yes, the natural world testifies that there is a God, so much so that the wicked are without excuse. But where do you see the reflection of Jesus? One place, the Word of God. The Word of God is the spiritual mirror that the text is talking about. In Paul's day, that would have been the Old Testament scriptures that God's people had, as well as the new revelation that God was giving through his apostles that Paul and the other apostles were preaching. For us, Today, the spiritual mirror in which we see the reflection of God in Jesus Christ is the completed Scriptures. Proof for that is found throughout Scripture. Starting in our text, you go to that word darkly. You remember, at the start of the first point, I mentioned you could translate that word darkly as dark saying. Literally, the Greek word is enigma or a riddle, a saying that is very deep and because of its depth is not always able to be fully understood. But now, for our purposes, notice, a saying, the mirror is a saying. It is a word that is spoken, God's word spoken, the scriptures, his spoken word that has been written down for his people throughout the ages. But proof can also be gathered throughout the scriptures that this mirror is the word of God. For example, we find a similar expression in James 1 verses 23 through 25, which speaks about the law of God as the mirror in which we see our sins, the ugly face of our old man. We look into the mirror of the Ten Commandments and what is it that stares back at us? The ugly face of our old man, we see our sin alongside of the holiness of God revealed in those Ten Commandments. The Bible functions as a mirror. One more passage. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, where the apostle says, But we all, with open face, 
beholding as in a glass, and there's the idea of a mirror again, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glass is the Word of God. In context, Paul here in 2 Corinthians 3 is explaining why the Jews couldn't understand the Old Testament Scriptures. They had a veil over their eyes. They didn't see Christ in the Scriptures, but by the power of the Spirit, New Testament believers have the eyes to see the reflection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and through the entirety of the Scriptures. So, to summarize thus far, our knowledge of God now is like seeing a reflection in the mirror. And where do we see the reflection of God? We see it in His Word. The Bible is like a mirror. And that in several ways. A mirror gives an accurate reflection. That is, a good mirror does. Of course, a warped mirror or a broken mirror will give a very distorted image, but a mirror that is in good condition will give an accurate image of the one reflected in it. And so, too, with the Scriptures. This is the inspired Word of God that gives us an accurate and truthful reflection of God, who He is. In the Bible, we are given a glimpse of the hidden counsel of God concerning our redemption. We are given a glimpse into His heart. That especially in the face of Jesus Christ, where is the revelation of His mercy and His grace. The Bible is the mirror in which we see God reflected. A good mirror reflects clearly. And so it is with the Scriptures. The Scriptures give us a clear reflection of God, not merely a shadow or a silhouette that we can barely make out, but a clear reflection of God. It tells us, the Scripture does, of all of His glorious attributes. The Scriptures reveal Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of God. That doesn't mean that every single part of the Scriptures is easy to understand or equally clear. There are deep depths to the Scriptures. There are some passages that are admittedly difficult to understand, but the entire message of the Gospel is clear and plain. And Scripture interprets Scripture in such a way that we are able to dig into even those difficult texts. There's no error. There's no contradictions in the Bible. It gives a clear reflection of God. But now, reflection. That's really the point that this text is driving home to us. Accurate, yes, but still only a reflection. And no matter how good a reflection is, it's still just a reflection. It's not the reality itself. When you see somebody's reflection in the mirror, you don't talk to that reflection. You don't reach out your hand and shake the reflection's hand. It's just a reflection. So, too, with our knowledge now. Our knowledge of God is through this means of the Word, which is like a mirror. We see now through a glass darkly. We see the reflection of God in a dark saying that is a deep 
saying the depths of which we cannot fully plumb. And thus, the second part of the comparison of our verse, now we know him only in part. Our knowledge of God, here and now, though real, though accurate, though truthful, is partial. Now in this present world, before the consummation of all things, on the day of Jesus Christ, our knowledge of God is partial and imperfect, through a glass, darkly. As rich as the knowledge of God is, which can be drawn from the Scriptures, and oh, how rich it is. It's only a glimpse. Think of it this way. Think of the entire Pacific Ocean as the knowledge of God. Even when we are digging deeply into the Scriptures, we are still floating on the surface of the ocean with our goggles on, looking just a few feet. There is way, way down there depths that we cannot see. In part, a glimpse. Not because God has given us a poor or an insufficient means by which to know Him. It's not that this Word is a broken mirror. On the contrary, God has designed this Word for us and it is exactly suited to our needs. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. The imperfection of our knowledge is not due to a deficiency in the Word of God, but due to us. In various respects and for various reasons. First, our sinfulness. Our sinfulness clouds our vision. We can't see, see all that deeply down into the depths of the Word of God. Our sin makes our spiritual senses dull. Indeed, apart from grace, we're utterly and completely blind. Only the Spirit of God, Ephesians 1 verse 18 says, can illuminate or enlighten the eyes of our understanding so that we can perceive and understand the spiritual things of God's Word. And the Spirit does that. He has illuminated the eyes of our understanding. Believer, you have a new set of eyes. Faith is your spiritual eyes. And faith sees the reflection of God clearly and beautifully and gloriously in the mirror of the Word. But as fallen people, our vision is still dim. We're still snorkeling on the surface of the depths of the knowledge of God. Just a beginning. Sometimes our sin makes the mirror foggy, not because there's a problem with the mirror, but because our sin throws a fog before our eyes. Uh, Another reason is our own creaturely limitations. We are creatures of the dust, of the earth, earthy, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. And because we are creatures of the dust, so limited, 
we can't see the big picture of the knowledge of God. We can't get to the bottom of who God is. And indeed, for that reason, because of our earthliness and our creatureliness, God in the Bible speaks to us in human language. The Bible, in a way, accommodates our creatureliness. God speaks to us in words that we can understand using concepts that we can understand. As John Calvin put it, God lisps in the Scriptures, meaning He baby talks, because that's all we can understand. The Bible is true. And the knowledge that we gain from the Bible is true from, be- from beginning to end, and it's glorious, it's wonderful. But in the Bible, God brings His truth down to our level, much the way a parent takes complicated concepts and breaks it down and explains it very simply to a child. That's what God does for us here, because we're little creatures with small, finite understanding. Third, in our present state as fallen creatures, we can't take anything more than a reflection of God. You remember Moses in Exodus 33, verse 18, where Moses asks God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Then in verse 20 of Exodus 33, God says this in response, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Little creatures like us and sinners besides, we cannot stand to behold the fullness of the glory of the infinite God. We would be consumed. Consumed. So that's why when you read on in Exodus 33 and 34, God takes Moses and puts him in the cleft of a rock and covers Moses with his hand and causes his glory to pass by. And Moses does not see the face of the Lord, but Moses catches a glimpse of the Lord's back. And that was enough to make Moses' face shine. Now, as we are now, the only way we can look at God is to look at his reflection that he gives in the scriptures. Anything more would consume us. We need this glass through which we see him darkly. We need it now. So to wrap up the first point, the idea is that we have real knowledge of God. And if you've been through the essentials catechism class, you know Or you remember the first question and answer, what above all things is most precious? The knowledge of God. So great is that gift that we've been given to know Him, that we have the Scriptures by which we may know Him. When we look in the Scriptures with the eyes of faith, we see God in the face of Jesus Christ. But the Scriptures are just a mirror. They give us just a reflection which means our knowledge is partial. It's indirect. Yes, God speaks to us, and in the Scriptures we hear His voice. But it's different than hearing His voice directly from heaven. It comes to us mediated through the Word. 
real, but not direct. There is a certain distance between us and God right now. Now, to be sure, God is present with us and very close to us by His Spirit. His Spirit dwells in the heart of the child of God. But there is yet distance, is there not? God is in heaven. And God fills all things. Yes, He is everywhere present. But we feel absent from Him, do we not? We are here on earth. We do not yet abide in the fullness of His presence. When we pray to Him, yes, we transcend distance, as Psalter 4.16 says, but we do not yet see the face of the One to whom we pray with these eyes. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, which we read this morning, resonates with us, doesn't it? Whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. There is a certain distance, in part, through a glass darkly. That's now. That's this life. But now the purpose of the inspired apostle in this text is to wonderfully bring out the contrast between now and then. Now, with our imperfect and partial knowledge of God, now is not going to be forever. The fact that we have any knowledge of God is a wonderful blessing earned for us by the work of Jesus Christ, but there is more and there is better in store for the people of God. Then, then... Now we see through a glass darkly. Now we know in part, but then, the text says, face to face. The idea being we shall see face to face. And we shall know, not in part, but we shall know even as also we are known. Of God. Then, in the world to come. Let's now dig into what this second part of the text teaches. And oh, how wonderful this truth is. How it should stir our faith and excite our hope and kindle our love. As we see the more and the better that is in store for the people of God in the age to come when the weary night of this earthly life is past. Face to face. That's the contrast. Now, in a glass darkly, a reflection in a mirror. Then, face to face. No mirror. Face to face. And that expression in Scripture is rich. In the first place, the expression face-to-face conveys the idea of direct communication as opposed to an indirect form of communication. When you are with someone and you are facing them face-to-face, you speak directly to them. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4 Moses reminds Israel 
The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Now understand, Deuteronomy 5 verse 4 is not talking about the same level or the same degree of face to face communication as 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 is. You remember from the history, the children of Israel did not see God's face. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai, but God spoke in a direct way, thundering from the mountain. He spoke to Moses, and through Moses, the mediator to the children of Israel, there was a kind of direct communication there, but even that is a mere shadow compared to what our text is talking about. But the point being made here is face-to-face means direct communication, not just a reflection. But there's more. Face-to-face emphasizes warm, close communion, fellowship, and friendship. Face-to-face is an expression that should bring to mind the covenant. The covenant, that great theme of the Word of God, the covenant of grace, the relationship of love and friendship and fellowship that God sovereignly, graciously establishes with His elect people through Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that fellowship is this, face to face. Exodus 33 verse 11 brings out that idea. Exodus 33, verse 11 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh to his friend. When you really want to converse with someone and fellowship with them, a mirror isn't going to cut it. A photo isn't going to do it. Even a video call in our day and age doesn't quite Get you what you want. You want to go and sit down with them, perhaps with a cup of coffee, and look them in the eyes and speak face to face and laugh together and share stories together. That's fellowship, face to face. And that's what the text is bringing out here. Then, in the age to come, that's what awaits us. Face to face with God. You find that yearning sentiment for face-to-face fellowship in some of Paul's letters. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, here the apostle warmly says to the Thessalonian Christians, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. For Paul, writing an epistle to the the Thessalonians didn't cut it. He wanted more. He wanted to see them face to face. God has written us His letter of love, the Holy Scriptures. And as wonderful as this is, and as powerful as this word is, as it conveys to us, the heart of our God in Jesus Christ, there's something better. Seeing Him face to face. And that's ultimately what God desires. That's ultimately His purpose. That's at the center of His counsel for all things, that He will glorify Himself by saving a people through Jesus Christ and bringing them to Himself 
so that they may see him face to face and behold his glory, and he may speak to them and fellowship with them face to face. That raises the question then, how can that be? How can we ever see God face to face? And the answer, the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation of God, and as such, He is the face of God. For the face is what reveals the person. When you look someone in the face and look into their eyes, you, as it were, see into their heart. The face expresses emotion. The face conveys what is going on in a person's heart. That's why a facial expression can so often communicate more than the spoken word. The face reveals the person. And the invisible God sent Jesus Christ into the world to take on our flesh to be made man that He might be the face of God to us. And that in Him, seeing the face of Jesus Christ, we might see into the very heart of the triune God. God is invisible to the creaturely eye. John 1 verse 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That is, He hath made Him known. Colossians 1 verse 15 says of Jesus that He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of Jesus that He is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. He is the Word made flesh in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Colossians 2 verse 9. Thus, the fullness of the Godhead in Christ dwells visibly And so Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. That's Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And part of the idea of that is God face to face with us. Jesus took our flesh, yes, so that He could die in our flesh and atone for our sins. But that's not the only reason that He took on our flesh. He took on our flesh to abide in our flesh, to be the face of God to us. Jesus didn't take our human nature and then discard it the way a snake discards its its skin. But Jesus arose from the dead in our flesh, glorified, and He ascended into heaven in our flesh. He abides forever, fully God and fully man. The face of God to us. And that's how we see God. Now, already, 
The way that we see God is by seeing the reflection of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And then, that's going to be the heart of then. We will see Jesus face to face. We will look upon Him. And seeing Him, we shall see God. Seeing Him face to face, we shall see into the depths of who God is, the depths of His love, the depths of His mercy, the depths of His grace, like never before. That's the then of the text. Then, the mirror, as useful as it has been to us now, we won't need it anymore. We won't need a glass in which to see a reflection of God darkly because we will see Him face to face in the face of Jesus Christ. And thus the text says, Then shall I know, even as also I am known. That's perfect knowledge. The fullness of the knowledge that we have now, which is accurate and true, but only partial and incomplete and imperfect, then shall be full, complete, and perfect. We shall know God as He knows us. And that is an astonishing statement. Think about that. How God knows us. He knows us completely. He knows us with a full knowledge because He made us. He knows the innermost recesses of our hearts. He has an immediate knowledge of us. That is, God doesn't need any means. He doesn't need any tools to learn about us. He doesn't look at us in a mirror. He simply knows us. Then, we shall know God the way He knows us. We won't need the mirror. Face to face. Our knowledge will be made perfect. Now understand, this does not mean that we will know God in exactly the same way that He knows us. That's impossible. You and I will never know everything there is to know about God because He's infinite. He's limitless. Eternity is not long enough to know everything there is to know about God. We are creatures. We are finite. We will never be able to wrap our minds around the fullness of who God is. But then, our knowledge will be perfect. There will be no more fog. There will be no more errors. There will be no more lack of clarity. There will be a fullness of understanding. We won't be snorkelers on the surface anymore, but we will be able to see into the depths. And even though we will never be able to get to the bottom of who God is because He's too deep and He's too marvelous and He's too glorious for any creature to fully grasp, our knowledge will be full and complete as much as is creaturely possible. We will know God as He knows us. Full clarity, full knowledge, and perfect love. When the Bible says God foreknew His people, it doesn't mean that He just looked down the corridors of time and and learned that they were going to be born. When God foreknows His people, 
It means he's foreordained his people. He's chosen them in love. He's foreloved them. God's knowledge of us is a knowledge of love. He fashioned each of his people in love. He's redeemed us in love. He's preparing a place for us in love. Then we will know the fullness of God's love for us. We know the riches of that love already. The gospel tells us. We see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. But we will know all the more then. And that's why our joy then will be full and complete. The more we know of God and the deeper we enter into the depths of His love and His grace and His mercy towards us, the more we fellowship with Him face to face then, that's joy. That's life. That's the covenant made perfect. Then. When is that then? When is then heaven? That's ultimately what this text is setting before us. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 gives us a glimpse of what eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. This is a glimpse of what heaven will be like face to face. Knowing God even as I am known of Him. No more mirrors. No more in part. For the fullness has come. No more sin to cloud my vision. No more errors, no more evil to alienate and estrange us from God. In heaven there will be no separation, no more distance to transcend. We will fully dwell in the presence of God before His face forevermore. That's what heaven is. It's not engaging in our favorite hobbies that we had here on earth. It's not an everlasting church service, though we will undoubtedly sing and praise the Lord in glory. But if you want to know what heaven is going to be like, it's going to be face to face with God. Fellowshipping with Him face to face through Jesus Christ. Together as a communion of saints, as the family of God, as His covenant people, and personally. Notice that. In the text... Paul switches to the first person singular. He says, Then shall I know, even as also I am known. Nobody's going to get lost in the crowd in heaven. Nobody's going to be an insignificant, marginalized individual that nobody cares about and that God doesn't have time for in heaven. Every single believer, every single one of us can with joy say with Paul, then in heaven I shall know as I am known. I will fellowship with God face to face. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ earned for us. God's dwelling will be with man. 
as Revelation 21 says. He will make his tabernacle with us. He will be our God. We will be his people. The Lamb will be in the midst of us. He will be our light in the Father's house of many mansions. That's the covenant of grace fully realized. And God will never hide his face. He will never turn his face away from you in displeasure. Eternally, he will lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the everlasting benediction of heaven to come. The height, the height, the mountain peak of heaven's joy is being face to face with God. Think of the well-known words, John 17, verse 3, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. As you think about then, as you think about what is to come. Beloved, let your hearts be lifted, be thrilled with joy. And connect this word to the sermon, the word that we heard this morning. What reason we have for gratitude. This is what Christ has done for us. Without Christ, we wouldn't even see God through a glass darkly. We'd be utterly blind and be heading straight for that pit of hell where we would never see God, where our only experience of God would be the continual outpouring of His just wrath, where we would be separated from Him, the place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. But because Christ came and because Christ died on the cross for you and all of His elect people, this is what you look forward to. This is what can never be taken from you. This is what no earthly hardship, no pain or suffering in this life can ever snatch away from you you will see Him face to face forever. We've looked at the now. We've looked at the then. Now let's conclude by connecting them. We're in the now. What about until then? What does this text imply about how we live now until then. So much could be said here, but for a few main implications, we can simply go to the context, actually go down to the last verse of the chapter, which speaks about the three cardinal Christian graces, faith, hope, and love. From now until then, this is how we live in response to this truth, faith, hope, and love for the God of our salvation. Let's briefly apply those three. We see right now through a glass darkly, but in that glass we see faith finds Christ in the mirror. 
And faith lays hold of Christ. We see that reflection and it is enough. It is sufficient for us in this life. It is sufficient for the worship of God and a life of godliness. All we need to know about God here and now is found in the Word. And so people of God, keep looking in the mirror. Keep gazing into the mirror of the Scriptures and fix your eyes every single day upon Jesus Christ, who is your refuge, who is your strength, who is your ever-present help in time of trouble, who is your all, who is your Savior. Do not take your eyes off of Him. Do not look into all of the broken mirrors that this world sets before your eyes and the world says, look here, look at the reflections here, it's so much better. No, see those reflections for what they are, those twisted images of sin and false promises. Set them aside and gaze into this mirror and live according to what you see in this mirror, Christ Him crucified, and all of the promises of God, which are yea and amen in Him. There is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. And there is only one place under heaven given among men wherein we may know this Christ, and it is here, His Word. Cherish the Word. Be a people of the Word. That application is made so often, perhaps it's easy to let it just run off our backs. But in light of what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tonight, let us have that application pressed upon our hearts. So important is the Word to us because the Word shows us Christ. The one in whom we rest and rely upon for this life and the next. Christ who is the reason for the then, which is to come. Christ, who is the certainty of the then. Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the road and the bridge from the now to the then. Now, And until then, live in faith and in hope. Hope of the glory of God soon to be revealed in us. The glory of God that we will see when we see Him face to face. Hope is an earnest expectation of future good that is certain and sure. We see through a glass darkly, but what we see reflected in this mirror is enough to give us steadfast hope. Even the reflection in this mirror gives us a dazzling glimpse of the glory that awaits, the blessedness of heaven, the kingdom prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Live in that hope. Don't forget that hope. Don't let the cloudiness of this life... The haze of sin, the smog of suffering and temptation blind you to your hope. What is certain and sure, what is coming to you for Jesus' sake. Now, until then, live in hope.
till the day that you face death. Death need not terrify the Christian because your death day is the first day you see God face to face. Psalm 17, verse 15, we often quote it or sing it at funerals. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. That's what's coming. That's at the end of the road of this life. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. Hope now until then. And finally, now until then, live in love. Walk that more excellent way. When your eyes are fixed upon the Christ revealed in the mirror of the Scriptures, when you see Him, when you see His cross, when you understand what it means for you, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, love is born in the heart. And love grows. And the flame of that love is kindled all the more brightly and the more warmly. When we see the love of God displayed for us in Jesus Christ, our only response can be to love Him and serve Him. Now, until then, when face to face, knowing Him as we are known, we shall love Him perfectly forever, world without end. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this glimpse of heaven in this beautiful text. Press this word upon our hearts that it may fill us with joy and cast out our fear that we may rest in the sure hope of what we have coming through Jesus. We thank Thee for it and pray in His name. Amen.